Good morning. Well, I got one or two responses. Good morning. There you go. There you go. Um, we're glad to have you here in the sun, this Sunday school hour, Bible fellowship hour, whatever the new name is. And uh, we're here to study the Word of God, and uh, we are privileged to have a guest speaker with us who was here yesterday at the men's conference, Dr. Peter Gaiman from Cary, from the seminary, Shepherd Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. I heard good things from it at seminary, and a lot of you know Michael Vlock. Michael Vlock is one of the teachers there and teaches along with uh, Peter. And some of you know uh, Dr. Bookman, too. And I think somebody told me years ago he spoke here. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Oh, OK. So he's been here, too, years ago. So we're looking forward to having uh, Peter speak to us this morning. And without further ado, after prayer, he'll uh, take over, OK? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to know you and know you personally through your son Jesus Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit as he uses his word to illuminate the truth and to bring us closer to him and may our lives even conform to his image. So Father, give Peter uh, liberty to speak and to say those things which you have laid on his heart and we look forward to this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed the time yesterday with the men at the men's conference, and today I'm looking forward to spending some time with you all and talking about a variety of things. Uh, when, when I was thinking through what might be helpful to talk about in a setting like this, kind of a little more informal, uh, one of the things that often is on our minds, well, well, let's put it this way. Let me backtrack and say it this way. How many of you are trying to read through the Bible in a year? Any of you guys following that? Okay, so a good portion. Now, this is the time of year where you're in the Leviticus number stretch usually. <laughs> ah, see, now everyone resonates. They're like, yes, and this is hard. It's difficult. Uh, you know, it has been said that Leviticus is the graveyard of Bible reading programs. You know, it's where, where people are marching along. They're like, Genesis, it's great. Exodus, super exciting. Leviticus, wow. It's like, all right, what do I do with this? Uh, and so a lot of times we struggle. And part of the reasons that we struggle with that is because that is so different than how we think. I mean, we, we're in a Western culture in the, what century is this? The 21st century? The 21st century. And that just seems so foreign to us to imagine a world where, you know, you travel 70 some miles by foot to make a sacrifice in a building. It's just as weird. And that's not all that you have in, in the law. In the law, you have some crazy things like you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. It's just like, what in the world? Like, that just, how am I supposed to apply that? <laughs> it's like, now, granted, Nebraska does have more application to some of the agricultural laws than where I've been from. But uh, a lot of times, people read those things and say, hey, I have no idea what to do with that. 
And if you've ever felt that way, you're certainly not alone. That's kind of why when I went through my doctoral program, I basically focused on Old Testament law. And the reason for that was because I just really felt that too. And I said, listen, I don't really have a great answer about how we can get benefit from the law. Because it's obvious that you can't just take, well, maybe it's not obvious. It seems obvious that you can't just take what the law says and apply it in a one-for-one correspondence. And so how in the world are we to think about that? And so that's kind of led me uh, through the various years to do some presentations and studies on how we as Christians can use the Old Testament law. So that's kind of the goal this morning is to kind of give you an introduction to that. And it's going to be, let's just say that I'm going to expect a lot of you, okay? And I'll make you a deal, okay? If I see you falling asleep, I reserve the right to throw this at you. (laughs) And if you don't understand something, you you reserve the right to throw something at me, okay? So it's, it's fair, okay? So let's uh, kind of march through it, and hopefully we can, we can pick up some things, and we'll see how fast we go. Uh, hopefully we can have um, some questions at the end if, if we have a little bit of time. So let's see if I can figure out how. Okay, so what does the Bible say about the law? That's the big question that we need to ask. And so the first thing that we 100% see in the New Testament especially is both and old, both old and New Testament, is that the law is good. And we find this it, some, some people say, well, the New Testament doesn't have anything good to say about the law. That's, that's wrong. The New Testament does speak uh, about the law as well as the Old Testament. Here's an example in Psalm 119, uh, verse 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. You know, I was teaching through Psalm 119 one, uh, one time, and one of the students that I was going through, he kind of raised his hand and said, how is it that the psalmist can say that I love your law so much. I read the law. I do not come away with these happy, you know, love feelings, you know, where I'm just thinking, ah, I really, I really get excited about the law. I, I think to myself, and I think you'd probably sympathize with this, uh, a lot of times the application is just, I'm so glad I don't live then. <laughs> That's the main application. It's like, well, maybe there's something different here. And we'll talk more about that. But throughout the Old Testament, there is a delight in God's law. In the New Testament, we see that as well. In Romans 7, 12, the law is holy, the commandment is, is holy and righteous and good. So there's nothing that's being said in the New Testament about the, about the wickedness of the law or the terribleness of the law. No, the, the law is viewed as holy, it's viewed as good, it's viewed as just. But the New Testament also says that the law is abolished. So Romans 6.14 says, you are not under the law, but under grace. It's kind of fascinating. You also have Galatians 5.18, which says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the implication of Galatians 5, as you walk through that, is, is really putting a contrast between those who are led by the Spirit, those who, who walk in faithfulness in accordance with the new covenant, and those who are under the flesh, and in painting that picture, Paul in verse 18 basically says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, but if you are under the law, then you are not led by the Spirit. He basically draws that contrast. 
Again, in Romans 7, 6, he says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, I mean, again, we're, we're putting these things hand, hand in hand. On the one hand, the law says, th- or, or people, when they're referring to the law, whether it be the psalmist, whether it be Christ, whether it be Paul, they often talk about the goodness of the law. But we also have these clear statements which say, listen, there's something different about being in the New Testament era where we are not under the law. Uh, Later on in Romans, Paul even says that Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law, uh, bringing about its completion. So there's something, something interesting going on here. Now, when we think about some test case scenarios, I think Romans 14 and 15 is one of the most interesting scenarios. And just for sake of time, we're, I'm going to summarize it for you without going into detail. There's going to be a lot of summary today just so that we can keep moving faster. But you can mark this down or I can, um, I can make this available to you. You can, you can get these for your own notes. But in Romans 14, you have the issue of, of the, the clean and unclean food laws and the observing one day rather than another day. And according to Old Testament law, you were to observe the Sabbath. Okay, that was the, that was the main priority for the people. But according to Romans 14, Paul says, listen, some people observe one day as more important than the others, but other Christians observe all days alike. And you would expect Paul to come down with a gavel saying, this is what you must do. And he says, each one does as they want. And that's fine. You're like, what? That's not according to the law. According to the law, the Sabbath is the priority. But also, he doesn't just say, just ignore it, like anybody who observes the Sabbath is ridiculous. He doesn't say that either. He just says, you know what? It's fine. You, there, there's flexibility to do this. Some people can continue to observe this one day as more important than the others, but everybody else can treat all days alike, and that's fine too. Same thing with eating. According to the dietary restrictions, according to the law, you are forbidden from eating certain kinds of food. In fact, I was, I'm learning all about Nebraska while I'm being here, and uh, most of it is really good. No, I, all of it's really good. All of it's really good. I, I enjoy it. Um, but I did find out that, that hog farming uh, was significant, maybe not as significant as it used to be, but it was certainly a significant part of Nebraskan uh, farming heritage, and uh, that would be something that would essentially be forbidden. It would be the forbidden aspect according to the law in the Old Testament. And uh, so, so you're forbidden from having, in fact, I had some pork chops the other day, and I was, I was rejoicing to the Lord. They were good pork chops. But according to the law, I would not be allowed to eat that. But according to Paul, he says, listen, like, you can eat whatever you want. But if somebody decides that they don't want to eat everything, if they want to follow the dietary restrictions, that's okay too. And, and, the phrase that Paul uses, which I, which I love, is to his own master he, he stands or falls, meaning that we all stand before Christ and give an account for what we're doing. But each person, whether they decide to eat whatever they want or whether they decide to restrict their diet, they are doing it for the Lord. That's, that's the goal. That's the purpose. And so Paul says there's freedom uh, to do that. There's freedom to make those choices. But notice what he's not doing is he's not saying we are bound by what the Old Testament law has stated in those situations which is distinct. And so I think this ends up being a, a good example 
in a contrast between living in the old covenant versus living in the new covenant of how things have changed. You can't just say everything is the same because it's not. So you have the, the laws of dietary restrictions, which have undergone clear changes. You also have circumcision and Sabbath, which are two laws that are essential to the old covenant. And those are dealt with as being non-essential now in the new covenant. You don't have to observe Saturday Sabbath. Uh, you don't have to, uh, you're, you're not obligated to become circumcised to be a part of the people of God. Those are things that have undergone significant change. And so when we think about these things, part of the, part of the question as we're, as we're working on a train of thought is that the law is good. That's what Paul and others have, have stated. But there seems to be a sense in which the law is done away with, and that's verified when we look at these test scenarios where these kinds of laws, which the, these laws weren't, weren't, uh, these weren't secondary laws. These were essential to the old covenant. I mean, this is in many ways what, what founded Jewish identity uh, was following these laws. And so the fact that Paul is saying these are, these are unnecessary to follow God would be really revolutionary to a lot of people. In fact, that's why there were so many uh, issues in the er early New Testament churches because there were big debates about, oh, do we need to make the Gentiles be circumcised? Do we, do we need to make people follow the Sabbath? And so Paul was regularly addressing those issues. So when we read the big picture of Scripture, I think we, we have to come to the conclusion that there is a, a revolution of sorts in the New Testament where the Old Testament law is done away with. So when we summarize, uh, and this will give us the foundation for moving forward, I would say that the law is inherently tied to the Mosaic legislation as part of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. And that's really important to understand is, is the law, Leviticus, uh, well, ex parts of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then even Deuteronomy are tied into that covenant that God makes with Israel at the specific exodus and conquest scenario, saying you will be my nation and I will be your God. And so the laws are actually tied into that existence. Now, Scripture is also clear, as we trace some of, some of these threads, that the Old Covenant has been abrogated or it's been replaced so you can read things like Second uh, Corinthians three is a good example, but Hebrews seven is maybe one of the easiest places to see that, where it says that the old covenant is becoming old and becoming obsolete. Depending on what your translation says, some translations say it's becoming obsolete, or some say it's it's passing away. The point is that the author of Hebrews is saying the old covenant has been done away with and it's been replaced by the new covenant. And so if you're thinking along this line, if the law is tied to the old Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic covenant has been replaced by the new covenant, ergo, you would expect the laws that are tied to this older covenant to also pass away. All right, everyone track? Let, let me, informal time. Does that make sense to everyone? Anyone, anyone uh, need clarification? All right. Well, you guys are in seminary class now. <laughs> all right, so, and the thing to remember with this as part of all this is that the law rises or falls as a, as a complete unit. 
So, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a second, but I think it, I think it wise to reject any attempt to divide the law up into different categories. I'll explain more what I mean, but, but if you just look at James 2.10 and Galatians 5.3, uh, you see James and Paul there treating the law as a whole. So James 2, for example, says that if you, if, if you fail in one part of the law, you are guilty of all of it. That's what James says. And I think that that is, that is the summary of Scripture. If you look at that, anytime somebody was rebellious in the Old Testament uh, against the law of God, it wasn't as if they said, well, you're just guilty of this part. No, they, they said you're, you're violating the entire treaty, the entire covenant that God has given to you. So if the, if the Mosaic Covenant has been abrogated, then the entire law seems to be abrogated with it. Okay, that's, that's my main point. I think that that is a logical consistency with what we uh, read in Scripture. So then, if that's true, does that mean that there's any relationship left for us with the law? Does that mean we can benefit from it at all? Does that mean that we should just never read the Old Testament? That's what some people do. They just say, okay, Leviticus, boom, just skip that. Numbers, skip that. Deuteronomy, skip that. Okay, back to some exciting stories. What, uh, what should we think of when we think through the law? When we, when we look at the examples of the New Testament authors, it seems like some of those laws are quoted. They retain their authority. Paul seems to refer to the law in a variety of places. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at some example, or at least one example where Jesus does that. But Paul himself quotes, one funny example is in 1 Corinthians 9 where, where Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 and says, you shall not muzzle an ox treading the grain. And he uses that to apply the principle that your pastors should be paid. It's like, well, that's weird that you would quote the law in general, but that you would quote that law about muzzling an ox in order to prove a point. Well, well, we'll go into more of that in a little bit. So really what I want to try to help us is to have some sort of framework for how to make, use the law as, as a grid to help, help sharpen our ethical sense. Because the law does come from God. And so there, there should be some way that it can remain useful, especially since the Old, the Old and New Testament talk about how good and useful it is. So in order to kind of set that standard, I, I'm just going to survey maybe uh, four different views on how traditionally the church has, has said that we should use the law or relate to the law. So the first one is what we could call the traditional reformed approach. I almost guarantee that many of you, I almost guarantee that most of you would fall into this category, whether you knew it or not, because, but it's not, I mean, there's nothing, it's, all right, I, I don't want to step on people's toes here. That's why I say, because I almost guarantee that we've all, I have done this many, many times. I don't think it's the best way, but this is where the whole idea of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws come from, okay? And I've said this before, that I don't think that that, that, that it's good to categorize laws uh, in, in those senses. But this is typically how it's portrayed, that the, that the law is divisible into three categories, moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. 
Okay, the moral laws remain binding on believers because they are revelations of God's moral law. And so things like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, those would be examples in this system of moral law. The civil law would be things that pertain to Israel as a civil society or civic society, things like uh, cities of refuge and whatever, where, where Israel, even land allotments, those are examples of civic laws which were governing the nation of Israel. And since the nation of Israel uh, passed from the scene in this viewpoint, then you're going to then have uh, the civic laws also passing from the scene because the church is no longer a nation as much as a spiritual entity. And then you have the ceremonial laws, which would include sacrifices, uh, offerings, all of those varieties of, of different uh, worship regulations. And those have all passed from the scene because of the sacrifice of Christ. So after Christ has come and shed his blood, then we get away or we move away from all of the ceremonial laws. But here, here's my contention. Uh, one of the things that I, <sighs> yeah, and again, I am fully aware that it's possible you've all sat through like Sunday school where, you, you know, you're talking about this and you say, yeah, well, this is a moral law and we continue to use this. This is a ceremonial law, so we don't continue to use this. I know that that, I would say, at least in my circles, you know, 80 to 90% of people use that terminology. But the problem that I have with it, and I, let, me, let me say, I don't think it's sinful to use that terminology, but I think it can be misleading. That's what I'm getting at. Because when you try to determine laws according to moral, civil, and ceremonial categories, one, I don't think that the Bible ever does that. Like, I, I don't see any examples of the Bible ever using those categories of moral, civil, ceremonial. And two, it's only... It's only a retroactive description. It doesn't actually tell you which laws are moral, civil, or ceremonial. What, what I mean by that is if you, look, if you asked any of the laws, you just pick uh, a random one um, about restoring, uh, restoring a stolen sheep uh, fivefold or whatever. Okay, is that, law, is that law moral? Is it civil or ceremonial? And somebody would say, well... Uh, I guess moral? No, civil. Uh, so how do you determine it? Basically, the, the reason those categories exist is because we want some sort of paradigm to understand why there are some laws that we think we should apply, but other laws that we don't, but it doesn't tell us how to do that. Another one would be a Sabbath. The Sabbath law is a great illustration of that because a lot of times the Ten Commandments are viewed as moral laws. And they say, okay, the Ten, Ten Commandments have to be moral law. But one of the things we just showed was that the Sabbath law was very clearly done away with. Paul was clear that the Sabbath law was not binding on believers anymore. And so the Sabbath law is a part of the Ten Commandments, therefore it should be moral. But the Sabbath law also governed the entire calendar of the Israelites, which would be a civil law. And it governed their, their religious ceremonial sacrifices, which would make it a ceremonial law. And Paul was explicit that the Sabbath law had been done away with, which would also be an argument for a ceremonial law. So it's just very difficult to categorize it that way. The, the overlap is almost in every single law is the point I'm trying to make. And it doesn't actually give you a framework for saying how we should use something or not. But I will say the reason it's so attractive, and a lot of people, I almost assume many of you have just thought through this or, or have used this before, 
But the reason it's really attractive is because people will come up to you and say, well, why is it that you say, as Christians, you say that there are laws in the Old Testament against homosexuality, but in the Old Testament there are also laws against eating you know, shrimp and any kind of you know, bacon or things like that. So you're inconsistent. And so the Christian default is like, okay, I really need a quick answer to that. Okay, the quick answer is that, well, these laws are ceremonial, these laws are moral. And then usually that shuts up whoever was bringing up that point only because they don't understand what argument you just made. And that's never a good reason to, um, and I'm not, and again, I, I, I've used that kind of terminology before myself, but it's, it, it requires a little more consistency and depth of thought than just to say, oh, civil, uh, civil ceremonial or moral laws. I think there's, there's a better way to do that. So I think one of, the, one of the big problems with this approach is just that that classification doesn't work, okay? Uh, and I will give a more of a holistic approach to that. Uh, another approach which has really skyrocketed in popularity recently uh, would be uh, theonomy. And theonomy is very similar to the traditional reformed approach of the tripartite, that's what they call it, the threefold division or tripartite division of the law. And it's very similar because it uses the same classifications, but theonomy, and this is just a broad, simple overview, Theonomy basically teaches that instead of just the moral law being binding, moral and civil laws are binding. Okay, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's, I think that, that is largely true for many of the theonomists is that they would say, okay, ceremonial laws are done away with, yes, but we need to take the civil laws and apply those as direct as possible to our nation. So in other words, our nation, America, should be brought under many of the civil laws that were governing Israel's uh, civic existence. So it'd be very similar. They do make the same divisions. They just say more should be applied in a direct moral component than the ceremonial, than just the, than just the moral. Then you also have the Lutheran distinction, which um, I, I have less of a problem with the Lutheran distinction, but one of the, one of the, Problems is I think it, it, uh, it's overly simplistic in, in creating a, a law-gospel distinction. So, for example, uh, in a, a very strict Lutheran uh, application, uh, you would say, well, the law is over here. The law has no application or, or we should not consider that at all and we're only governed by the gospel. I, th- I think that's uh, like Luther, Luther was very prominent, and depending on who you would read in different Luther, Lutheran denominations now, they might vary in that, but Luther himself was, was very, I don't know if I can use a word, dichotomistic. He, he created such a dichotomy uh, or a division between the law and gospel, and I don't think that that's actually biblical either. It's, it's, a, it's a holistic approach. You're to view the Bible as, as, a, as an entirety, not as just divided up into parts. So I, I'm, I'm not too thrilled with that, but I think it's, it's closer than the other ones. But what I would advocate for, so all that to try to just do our homework here and say, okay, these have all been attempts, but what we're going to do the rest of the day is try to show you how I think principalism is the correct means of application for the Old Testament law. And so principalism, as its name implies, is that 
it, it recognizes that the Old Testament is not a binding authority upon us. In other words, you and I are not Old Testament Israelites living under the Mosaic law and Mosaic covenant. So that's true. But we still recognize that there are principles that God has instilled into the law that we can apply in a variety of circumstances. That's, that's all it's trying to say. Uh, but there's a difference between being bound by the letter of the law versus being guided by what the spirit of what the law is trying to communicate. Okay? So there's a difference there. And that might differ from situation to situation, whereas laws tend to be very concrete. Uh, well, one more thing on that as it comes to mind. Uh, a couple scholars have, have noted or have drawn the parallel to the law being viewed as wisdom literature in, in, under the new covenant. And I like that comparison. You could probably go overboard with it, but as it stands, I think it's a good comparison, meaning that when you read the book of Proverbs, for example, you really resonate with it because you say, oh, these are, these are really good grounding principles which I can, live, I can live with, and that doesn't mean I need to obey it the same way in every single situation, but I can apply it in a, a wisdom-filled, Christ-centered existence. Well, the law is very similar now where you can take the same thing. You don't have to be bound by the letter of the law. For example, let's say, you know, let's say you steal someone's, you know, lamb. You're not obligated to, to give them for replacement. You could give them the monetary equivalent of for replacement or something along those lines. You could, you, and depending, depending on the situation, maybe the person doesn't, doesn't want four lambs for replacement. You could, you know, give them some, some in-kind replacement, uh, just maybe you could grant them a vacation beach house or something. I don't know. You just say, if that's the equivalent of four, four lambs, I don't know. The point is that you're not bound by the letter. You're bound by, by a principle of restitution, which makes sense. That's, that's just how God expects us to live. So how, how should we think through the foundations of principalism here? So we understand that the law reflects the character of God. That's important to understand. And not every law reflects the character of God, but many of the laws do. And, and we'll talk about the distinction in just a moment. The law also reflects God's creation design. So what I'm, what I'm gearing toward here, what I'm, what I'm trying to describe is that the law has a multifaceted or the law has multiple purposes and one of the purposes of the law is to reflect God's character. In other words, we better understand God's holiness when we read about just how holy he is and what that requires the Old Testament Israelites to do, like sacrifice, laws of cleanliness, all those things. So it's a constant teaching component to teach us about the holiness of God. But there are also laws which teach us how we ought to live in a created world, laws that govern things like marriage and sexuality and things like that. But there's also laws that have a temporal application to Israel's specific existence. And one of the, I think, most easily, uh, I guess, the, the application of that or the easiest example would be the dietary restrictions, which I think one of the reasons, the main reasons the dietary ex restrictions existed was to keep Israel separate from other people. And I think you know this because one of the, one of the, Throughout the world, even here in Nebraska, one of the easiest ways that you, you get to know somebody is you share a meal with them, right? And 
if you had laws which governed what you needed to eat, actually, I, I think we, uh, I, I have lots of friends that, that have like food allergies. And that kind of gives a simple illustration of that is when you're trying to decide what to eat, where to eat, how to eat, uh, if you're trying to eat with that person, it becomes a little more complicated. And it's not impossible, especially in today's economy. But, but I think in the old world, under the old covenant, yeah, if somebody said, sorry, I can't eat what you eat every single day, okay, I guess you're not going to be eating with us then. And so you basically had a, had a ready-made distinction between Israelites and their pagan neighbors who would be eating the pork and the, and the bacon and all those things. And so you have this, this built-in cultural, I call, I call it the cultural incubator. It's, it's keeping Israel incubated from the surrounding nations. It's protecting them. But it's not, it's not because eating bacon is sinful. Ah, ah, there we go. Amen. Amen is the appropriate answer to that. Yes. Uh, eating bacon is not sinful. Uh, eating turkey bacon may be sinful. But I don't know. I <laughs> It's, it's not that eating is, is directly sinful in and of itself. It's just that there's a specific function and purpose of those laws. And some of the other laws have other functions and purposes to reflect the character of God, to reflect the created order, uh, or to incubate Israel as, as a nation. Okay, so that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make. All right, and then so when we think about those three lenses, the law remains applicable if we think about it as a teaching lens. Okay, that's what it means to be didactic, a teaching lens. So we learn about God or about his creation design. Okay, that, that's what we're, we're trying to do then. We look through what God is doing and we say, okay, how do I learn? How can I learn from this? So it involves three steps. Okay, so anytime you're reading through the Old Testament law, you would basically follow these steps. So number one, you would try to look at what the original meaning of the law was, what its significance was, and what its purpose was. Okay, then you would look at that theological significance, understanding it. You have to do the, do the work. Nobody said this was going to be easy, but you have to do the work to understand this law in its context. And then you draw out connections to other laws. And that's a, that's a step that a lot of people miss. But I'm going to give you some examples of going through this process too, by the way. And then once you do that process, you can determine what that might look like in today's world to apply it to your own life. All right, so you, you look at what does the law mean in its, in its own context? How does that relate to some of the other laws that we see? And then we can apply it to our own life as what, what would the principle be? Now, when I'm talking about the law structure and how it relates to other laws, this is, this is kind of what I mean, is that in Exodus, see, this is, this is your seminary education, all right? Are you ready for this? So this is something that a lot of people just really kind of bypass, but I, I really think this is helpful, is that Exodus and Deuteronomy in particular, but Leviticus also seems to follow this in a, in a looser degree, but there is a structure involved in these books which follow the covenantal structure of that time period. So typically whenever the Assyrians would make a covenant or whenever the Hittites would make a covenant, they would follow this general outline. They would, and, we have, and the reason we know that is because we actually have documents that date from that time period. 
So we, we say, hey, look, this looks very similar to what we would read in some of the Hittite documents of the ancient Near East, ancient Near East just being the Middle East in the ancient world. So in the ancient Near East, we look at you know, these documents, there seems to be a historical prologue, a preamble, the general stipulations, specific stipulations. You have uh, witnesses or provisions for reading, and then you have blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience as part of the covenant. Well, that's exactly what we see in these Old Testament documents as well. Uh, Deuteronomy follows very similar pattern. You have the historical prologue, general stipulations, etc. And maybe to kind of give you uh, an illustration of how this works, I think America has, well, at least historically, it has had a, a helpful built-in illustration of this. Uh, what, is, what is it that governs American society? The Constitution. You see, you guys know that. You are Nebraskans. You know that. In my hometown of Raleigh, nobody would know that. They're just crazy over there. So the Constitution is what governs us. But how do we know what the Constitution looks like in daily life? It's called case law. And that's what justices are supposed to do, uh, although there's debate about whether or not they actually do that these days. But what justices are supposed to do is they're supposed to take the Constitution and show how it would apply uh, in everyday life. That's why the Supreme Court always makes national news, because they're saying, the Constitution means this, or the Constitution means that. And their goal is to try to help uh, society figure out, with the modern technological innovations, how the Constitution would apply in everyday life. And so that's similar to what's going on in the law, because you have the general law, which actually, the general law is, no surprise here, the Ten Commandments for Israelite society. So you think about these general principles, they, they weren't, and by the way, the Bible actually never calls them the Ten Commandments, that's something we invented. It called, the Bible, uh, the, the Old Testament calls, calls these uh, guiding uh, principles the Ten Words. And the reason that's somewhat significant is because it, it seems to indicate that the Bible themselves viewed the Ten Commandments as more than just a, a command, but as a guiding principle. All right, so these were the 10 words, the 10 principles which were to guide Israelite society. And then you had all these specific laws which were helping Israelites understand how that would flesh out in different scenarios. But the law was never meant to be exhaustive. The law wasn't intended to cover, you know, like American law, our, I don't even know how many laws we have on the books. In fact, nobody else does either. It's just like, we just start, sometimes, you know, people every once in a while will go through the law codes and say, yeah, we have two contradictory laws on the books or whatever. It's because that's just, we're, we're silly how we do it. But in the Old Testament, the goal was to, to paint a, a significant enough body of legislation where you could figure everything else out. But there are lots of things that, that aren't specifically mentioned in the law, but you should be able to figure it out based on what is in the law. That's, that's how any sane society would function. But unfortunately, we've kind of departed that in our own uh, purview. But that's why you have the general stipulations, specific stipulations. And that can help you then as you uh, compare different laws. Uh, to put it in just very practical sense, if you're reading a law, that's found in Deuteronomy 12 through 26, for example, you could think to yourself, and I'll actually show you how this might work, but 
you can think to yourself, what of the 10 principles or guiding principles, what of the 10 words is this referring to? Like how, what principle is behind this? And that can be a really helpful way to do it. So let's look at a case study that might, that might uh, clarify a lot of things that I've been dragging through the mud. All right, so here's, here's the law, uh, really kind of a famous example. Deuteronomy 22.8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. That's just a little fence around your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Okay, so we have to do some historical analysis here. The first thing you have to recognize is that houses in the ancient Near East are a little different than houses today. All right, how many of you regularly have parties on your roof? All right, I don't see any hands. Uh, that's probably good. You don't want to be <laughs> like my my roof is like this. Okay, I'm scared to go on my roof. the The angle is uh, so significant, and so we we don't use the roof of our house uh, for living space. But in the old ancient Near East, partly because of the arid conditions, they would they would use it as another room. They would, it's, it was their porch, so they they would have uh, parties and all that on on top of their roof for living space, storage space, all that. And so they were required to put a fence around it. All right. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at where it's situated, that law, Deuteronomy 22.8, is found in the specific stipulations. Okay. So we would expect there to be a relationship to a general principle of the, of the law, which are found in the Ten Commandments. Well, here is a handy-dandy chart so there are uh, a lot of scholars who have, who have backed this up, and, and I think it's, it's just a, a great analysis of the structure of Deuteronomy, is that if you're reading through Deuteronomy, uh, and Deuteronomy does this specifically because the entire book is, is meant to be a covenant renewal document with Israel, and so following the chapters 12 through 26, it basically follows as an order the Ten Commandments with the subjects that it talks about, which is really kind of cool. And once you, once you see this, it becomes, uh, becomes very helpful in, in figuring out application. So you'll notice uh, it, the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, thou shalt not murder, it, it's illustrated or exemplified in sections Deuteronomy 19 through 22.8. So that's the section that we just read was uh, do, you need to build a, a parapet around the roof of your house, lest someone fall off and incur blood guilt. And so what we see there is that, okay, assuming that this is correct, and you kind of have to do your background work, you have to double check, make sure I'm not just blowing smoke, but that this is an actual thing, and you could read this and find out that it is. And you say, okay, so this law about building, and you could, you could have figured this out by yourself too. This is just a helpful verification. But the whole point to building a fence around your roof is to protect life. And that's the whole point of not murdering someone. Uh, a lot of times we think to ourselves, oh, thou shalt not murder. It's not just about, in other words, you can't just say, oh, I, I am good if I don't kill people. Okay, that's, that's a really low bar there that you set for yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, as long as I don't kill people, I, I'm good. But the whole intent of the law itself is actually to value and preserve life. And so it's more, it's more to it than just uh, prohibiting murder or anything like that. So how do we, how do we trace, trace this? Well, 
we see the, print, the, the command, make a fence around your roof. But, and, and we understand even from Deuteronomy specifically that that's related to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But the reason, I don't know if you've ever asked this before, why is it that you shall not murder? Like, why, why is that a principle? What is, what is it that makes, is God just making up a random law just because he thought it was good? Well, there's actually a specific foundational creational principle behind that law, behind that principle. And it's that man is created in God's image. And we see that very clearly in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, we're taught, right there, God forbids uh, the taking of man's life. He says, if anyone takes man's life, by man his blood shall be shed. So in other words, capital punishment is instituted uh, against murder because murder is a direct affront against God. To put it this way, and this is kind of, this is, this is a very powerful thought if you, if you follow it along the way. But because, because man and the, the forces of darkness cannot kill God, the next best thing is to kill those who represent God. Right? That's, that's, that's what it means to be made in the image of God, is to represent God. And so that's why life is so valuable and, and protected, because we represent God. We are, his, we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors here on earth. We rule. We, we are here. Now, I'm not denying God's omnipresence or anything like that, but we are here physically, uh, in a tangible way, ruling over the world on behalf of God. That's, that's what it means to be made in God's image. And so that's why it's not, just, it's not just okay, or the intent of the law isn't just to forbid murdering, although that's a big part of it. It's also to value each, each other as an image bearer of, of Christ, right? That's, that's a, big, a big part of this. So what we're doing is we're going back from the specific application, which is Deuteronomy 22.8, and we're tracing it back to the general application, which is the command against murder, the command to recognize that you're made in the image of God, and then to found that on that creational principle of being the image bearer of Christ, the image bearer of God. And so it's, it's a, uh, basically the way I often explain it is that you're going from a specific command to the Ten Commandments, then to a creational principle that you see in Genesis 1 to 3. And that, that gives you a framework about how important this is. And if you can't do that, if you can't follow that process, then that shows you that this, was, this is probably not something that is, that is meant to be applied today. So, for example, the dietary restrictions. There's not really anything in the creational picture about... Uh, about uh, in fact, even as you go through Genesis 9... Uh, very early on, mankind is told explicitly that you can eat anything that you want. And so to try to trace it back and say, I'm trying, I'm looking for something that says eating bacon is inherently bad or whatever. It just, you don't find that. And that shows you that there's something else going on with that law. And it's the, what I call the incubator laws, which are meant to keep Israel distinct from the nations. And now that has been, um, there, there's no remaining applicability for that uh, because because the church has been uh, instituted as the current, uh, the current extension of God's plan to reconcile humanity to himself. And so when we think of this, this principle, it helps 
to, to try to trace it back all the way to creation. And that way, you're saying, okay, is there applicability for the laws on sexuality, for example, whether, whether it be, you know, you, you fill in the blank there, all these different scenarios. Well, yes, because when you trace it back to Genesis, you see, oh, okay, God instituted marriage as uh, the relationship between one man and one woman uh, for their lives. And that's a foundation as part of creation in Genesis 2. It's not a, a culturally uh, bound principle. It's something that's founded in the very way that God designed the world. And so it's, it's a, a little more consistent than just our... Now, if you wanted to go back and say, so therefore it's a moral law. So therefore it's, okay, I'm not going to hunt you down. I'll have somebody else do it. But I won't hunt you down. Um, I don't think you're going to get in trouble for doing that. But the point is, you, you're better off using a paradigm like this. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, he's a little crazy. That's what some of you are thinking. And you're thinking, okay, like, what in the world, what in the world did I just walk into? Well, I want to show you that it wasn't just me that did this. Jesus himself did this, okay? So the example of Jesus is, is key here. Now, I don't know, when you read Matthew 5, maybe you're, maybe you're like me, when I, when I used to read Matthew 5, I used to think, how in the world is Jesus doing this? Because you would read uh, ma- verses like this, Matthew 5, 21 through 22. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And I used to think to myself, that's really strange. Why, why would Jesus say that, you've heard it said that murder, but I'm not talking, I mean, really, if you're angry, that would be a violation of this principle. I'd be like, what? That didn't make sense to me. Until I started thinking through how the Old Testament itself set, set up these principles and these diagrams, because what Jesus is essentially doing is what I just proposed, where he's saying, listen, the principle of you shall not murder doesn't just prohibit the fact that you can, you should not take away the life of an Im- image bearer of God. The principle is that you need to treat each image bearer of God with respect, honor, and the due deference that belongs to them. So, for example, just because somebody is a jerk or an enemy or somebody cuts you off on the freeway or, you know, whatever, just because somebody does something incredibly foolish doesn't give you license to be angry with them, to hate them, to mistreat them. Why? Because they still represent God. They are still made in the image of God. Even the worst sinner in the world is still an image bearer of God. And so there is a, there's an obligation in applying that principle of recognizing the creation, the creational, uh, the creational institution of the image bearer of God and how we would respond to that and how we would act in light of that. So that's why uh, when, when Jesus is painting this scenario, he says, you know what? Uh, it's good that you don't kill people. That's good. And I applaud that, and I would second that message to all of you. Don't kill people. But it's more than that. You're, you're, not, you're not okay if you just go around avoiding killing people. Okay? The whole point is that you live in light of this creational reality where you are recognizing that people are image bearers of God and that you are acting in such a way where you value life, you act in such a way to, to honor life, to preserve life, and that, that should govern everything. That, sh- that should govern how we talk, 
that should govern um, how we act, all of those fall under, under that creational mandate, if that makes sense. So that's why Jesus can say, listen, you know, if you're angry with your brother, you're violating that principle. You're violating what it means to be made in the image of God. And so it's just a really good reminder that this is, this is how, to, how to walk through that. Okay, so I have another example here, but I want to see if there's any questions because we have like 10 minutes, 8 minutes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like if there's questions on that, because we've talked a, a lot about that, maybe you have a specific law in mind or maybe you have, I don't know, want clarification on anything that I talked about. Maybe that might be more, more helpful. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So just prior to that, in verse 17, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish a lot of prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So kind of based on that example you just gave and how thinking about how Paul also said Christ completely. So this is Jesus saying, here's your framework. When he gives the examples after that, here's your framework for how to follow this principle that I'm trying to teach you. Is that yeah, good, good clarification there. So yes, I think when Jesus, so Jesus basically heads that whole section by saying, do not come to think that I've abolished the law. In other words, I didn't just come to delete and just like totally uh, get rid of this, but I've, I've come to fulfill it. In other words, what the law was always intended to show you, I've come to fulfill that whole thing. And then so he gives some examples, which as you're, as you're saying, I think, I think you're exactly right. He's giving a paradigm for how we ought to understand that works out in life. And so some of the examples he gives. Now, I will also say that he also is, he's doing two things there. He's giving us a, a positive role, but he's also correcting a lot of their negative thinking as well. So some of them had, had brought up their own kinds of ideas of what it would look like to be godly, and they would add some of, some of the laws uh, for example, in verses 33 and following of Matthew 5, there's, there's laws that don't appear anywhere in Scripture, but their application, or I should say it this way, their application is, is not something you would find in the Bible. They, they've made this application of how we're going to swear oaths to God. And Jesus is correcting that whole uh, mindset. So it's, Jesus is doing multiple things here, but one of the things he absolutely is doing is he's providing a pattern uh, for us saying, this is how we need to think about this, uh, and, and a practical example of do as I say and as I do. Good clarification on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of piggyback on that. The rabbis added the law. I've heard it, I read it, that they put a fence around the law. Yeah. They put all these other stipulations in there so that, okay, if you're good with that, you're not going to... Uh, Disobey the Torah or the law. Exactly. And that's what, and that's what Jesus came to say. Hey, guys, it's not that at all. You know? Yeah, and I think that's a very natural human tendency, right? I mean, if, uh, you, if you have a, a very clear guideline in order to avoid violating that, you put like another perimeter around it. But the problem is that that's not... Um, what ends up happening then is, is that you're judging everyone, everyone according to the, the external standard which you have set up, and that's what the Pharisees were doing, 
And Jesus himself got on the Pharisees by saying, you know, you're, you're putting a yoke on people that you yourselves can't bear. And that's not that. The, the, the intent of the law wasn't to be a burden. The law was intended to be a help. And, uh, but the Pharisees had essentially made it a burden by putting extra mandates around the law like that. So that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, people, uh, religious people use uh, created in God's image for anti-capital punishment. <laughs> yeah, it well, yeah. Well, okay, here's the thing. So so people say, "Hey, we're made in the image of God, therefore we sh- we, you know, shouldn't engage in capital punishment." Here's my answer to that. Well, first of all, God himself like very clearly instituted it in Genesis 9. So you have to get around that somehow. But also logically and and theologically it makes most sense because if the if the highest crime that you can do is to, is to kill an image bearer of God, to take away their life in an unlawful manner, then the highest crime would necessitate the highest punishment. There, there's no punishment, uh, there's no punishment that, that, can, that can really, well, intuitively, uh, uh, I have an example to give for that too, but uh, we understand that the, the crime of murder, and you know, think of even some of the mass murders that have taken place, is so egregious to us, we understand that, that there's no punishment that can be enacted that is enough, right? And so capital punishment is the highest form of, of punishment we have available to us, uh, and it it's, fits with the biblical principle of the punishment must, must fit the crime, and that's, that's what God instituted in Genesis 9, where he says, if man sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. And I think that uh, Romans 13 also gives that, gives that purview. But it's interesting, as our societies have gotten more and more secularized, uh, there are certain places that have outlawed capital punishment. But then, uh, and I can't, I can't remember the exact case, but it's, it's interesting because there were, there were some mass murders, just egregious uh, things and even though the state had outlawed uh, capital punishment, they basically moved to have it be tried as a federal c- crime so that capital punishment could be instituted because they knew we need something else here. We need capital punishment and we don't have the ability to do that on the state level, so we better do it on the national level, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. A question on obedience to the law. In the Old Testament, I think you referenced it. Moses lined them up. There was blessing for obedience, cursing for yeah. obedience. That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the commands of Christ. We are expected to obey, but it seems like obedience will often lead to suffering in mm. this church age. Isn't it? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent observation. I was just, I just read a, a journal article the other day on that very issue where it is a fascinating, uh, a fascinating observation that in the New Testament era, uh, we are promised suffering. And in the Old Testament, uh, they were promised it with obedience would come blessing and prosperity and covenantal disobedience would bring them uh, would bring them uh, suffering. But in the New Testament, 
there is no, there is no uh, promise of, of having land or having uh, material prosperity or anything like that. It's, it just says, no, because the world hates me, it will also hate you. Because you are in the world but not of the world, the world will hate you and will persecute you. Second Timothy 3, all those who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. And so I think that's a, that's a good argument for the whole, what we often refer to as dispensationalism, because it shows that this is a different time in which we're living. Uh, in, the, in the church age, the church is promised persecution. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't be blessed by God for obedience. He reserves the right to do that, and he does do that, uh, because he is a loving, kind father, and so we regularly see that. But when you're evangelizing your friends, and when you're, when you're talking to them, the promise you need to give them is not that the Lord will give you lots of money or give you lots of, you know, amazing things. You need to promise them you can come be with us and you, you will suffer for it. <laughs> that's, that's honestly what you need to include in your, in your gospel presentation is just the warning that Jesus said, come to me, all you are, who are heavy laden, yes, I will give you rest, but also take up your cross and follow me. It's not, it's not going to be easy, and that's one of the things we need to remember most of all. All right, I think that's our time for today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take our break. Lord, you are so good and kind to give us the opportunity to think through these things. I pray that uh, this would be helpful for people and that uh, over time, Lord, we would find, find the opportunity to rejoice in the Old Testament uh, as you have revealed it for us, and there is a tremendous benefit in it. Help us to do that for your honor and glory. Amen.